Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on Satiate today. I'm Sue Van Rees, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, author, and founder of Boulder Nutrition here in Boulder, Colorado. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. Food has so much power. Power to nourish, to strengthen, and to connect us to one another. That said, it's a true rarity to find a woman today who is at peace with her plate, with how she eats, how she looks, and how she feels in her body. Satiate is here to engage in meaningful conversation about what it really means to have food and body freedom, to show up in life as who you really are, to trust yourself tracking the intelligent design of your body, and to prosper with embodied self-care in doing so. Satiate offers you functional nutrition and food psychology insights, some of my favorite special guests and experts from all over the world, and some personal insights and anecdotes that can act as salve for your soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful if you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That way, you'll be sure to be alerted when new episodes are published and help me spread the word so that other women in need can find their way to this important conversation. Thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's take a moment to introduce today's special guest, Carolyn Costin. Carolyn is a world-renowned, highly sought-after eating disorder clinician, author, and international speaker. Recovered from anorexia in her 20s, as a young therapist, Carolyn recognized her calling after successfully treating her first eating disorder client. Carolyn was first to publicly take the position that people with eating disorders can become fully recovered. She is a pioneer in the field, promoting the value of appropriately training and utilizing recovered individuals as an adjunct to overall support and care. After 15 years in private practice and running hospital programs, Carolyn was determined to improve the eating disorder relapse rate and recognized a gap in the eating disorder field. She opened Montanito, the first residential facility located in a home setting surrounded by nature where treatment was combined with meditation and yoga. For the first time, clients with eating disorders were provided a setting where they could make necessary behavior changes to ensure full recovery upon discharge. The ability to shop for, prepare for, and cooking food became integral to her program. Carolyn's contributions to the field are so extensive. She has written six books, the most popular being Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder. Carolyn's service in every major eating disorder organization, three decades of training professionals worldwide, free study groups and the outstanding success of Montanito all spurred Carolyn to international acclaim. After 
Montanito had grown 14 programs across the country. In 2016, Carolyn sold the country and subsequently left to create the Carolyn Costin Institute, CCI, where she would again fill the gap in the eating disorder field. The Institute is the first of its kind with the mission of training, supervising, and certifying eating disorder coaches. Carolyn continues to offer consultations to clients, clinicians. She speaks at national and international conferences and appears as a guest on numerous podcasts and interviews. Carolyn is an active, passionate, and inspiring force in the eating disorder field. And it is a great honor for me to host her on Satiate today. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Carolyn, it is such an honor to host you today. And I'm so thrilled about this conversation and getting to chat with you and get to know you and your work a little bit better. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited. I always like talking about these things, so I'm I'm energized. <laughs> Great. I love talking about these topics as well. So um, let's dive in with a little bit about your story. I know you've been in the field of food and recovery and wellness for a really long time, and you have such a robust bio and history. Um, tell us a little bit about how it all started. Wow. Okay. I'm going to try to do the cliff notes version of this, you know? Um, I mean, really it started with my own, you know, going on a diet when I was about 14 and then because of my, um, temperament, and we can talk about that a little bit. I have the, the vulnerability to be someone who gets very caught up in the perfectionism of it and, the compulsion of it and basically developed anorexia nervosa at a time before there were any books or journals or articles about it so it it was an interesting journey for me and ultimately i healed myself and became a teacher and a high school counselor and in seeing people um the high school principal said, you know, I really think you should see this girl. She has that thing you had. I was like this, you know, I, right. I was really, I don't know if I want to do that. But the long and short of it is I saw her and felt uh, this is what I was, I could do. I was meant to do. But I didn't think there'd be that many because at that time we just didn't have that much. We didn't, we, we weren't seeing anorexia and bulimia like we see it now. But I still felt like, wow, I I could get inside this girl's head and really help her. And then someone referred me someone with bulimia. Anyway, so I started treating people. And by the time Karen Carpenter died and was on the cover of Time magazine, I already had a full practice with these people hearing about, you know, this person who treats that thing. And, um, and then I realized that I needed to... Um, really do something in a bigger way because some of the people that I was treating were needing hospitals, but when they got that ill, they were going into hospital programs that I thought were, um, you know, not the best places to get well. And 
I ran a couple hospital programs and then ultimately opened the first residential in the United States, maybe even the world, I don't know, but it was the first, definitely the first residential treatment center for eating disorders here in the US. And that was called Montanito and that grew to be a very big company with um, across multiple states and I sold it in 2016. And now I train coaches. I train people like, you know, there's sober coaches and life coaches. There weren't any eating disorder coaches. So that's what I do now. I train mm. mostly recovered people to um, help, to be, to be an adjunct to the treatment team. So that, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> a few books along wow. the way. Yeah, a few books to say the least. Um, it's such an amazing journey when we can like take our own healing and then share it in a way that's so impactful for so many other people. Yeah. I'm curious yeah. with your residential facility that you opened, what would you say was different about that than being in a traditional hospital program? Like what, what was some of the distinctions oh, that yeah. were different? And I know there were many, yeah. but I'm just, I, 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 would, I would say consider. the, oh, God, it's hard. Probably the majority, the, the major one is that in a hospital, people, let's say you have an eating disorder, you're completely phobic of food. You're afraid to eat it. If you eat it, you, you think you have to get it out of you, uh, whatever. But to eat, you go down to a cafeteria and you get served on a tray with a little metal top, you know, and you don't have any interaction with the food. So when you go home, now what? Who's bringing you your little tray? So I realized these people need to be in a home. We need to take them grocery shopping. They need to be in the kitchen, portioning food, cooking food, serving it to themselves. If we want them to do this when they go home, why are we surprised people are relapsing when you just put weight on them in the hospital and send them home? It was so obvious to me and from my own eating disorder, you know. But the other thing I think is um, really individualized care, really being able to, you know, person first, patient second. And this whole person look like being able to have yoga and meditation and i i opened these places in environments where there was um land around where we could go hiking because it's not just what you're recovering from it ha people have to have a reason to want to recover what are you recovering to what kind of life and if you have role models around and and you learn about you know is something it's an internal shift the person has to ultimately want to do it you cannot treat an eating disorder through you know just supervision and monitoring and basically you know force in a treatment program yeah. you know what i mean if, if a person doesn't make an internal shift it's just not going to last so all those things I think were, were, were different, you know, and I was able to, there wasn't any, I, I didn't have anything to base it on. So I was just able to create the program that I would have wanted for myself when I was trying to heal. And, um, yeah, so I don't know what else to say about that, but I was very, and still am very proud that I started that. Absolutely. It sounds like it was very forefront in the field at the time and there wasn't anyone doing that as you mentioned being the first residential treatment center that was inclusive of all of these other modalities and and i, I also had um 
I also had fitness trainers, you know, we did yoga, um, but, and we went for walks and, and went appropriate hikes. But I also had a fitness trainer come twice a week, and this was so unheard of. People thought, why are you letting people with eating disorders, you know? Well, they were doing it anyway, but doing it inappropriately. When you train people, you don't just have to run and burn calories. How are you strengthening your bones and your muscle, being a strong person, and how do you do that? And they would have to eat their food in order to be able to, to train. So it was really uh, holistic. I guess that's a, you know. Yeah overused sounds, word, but it really was. Yeah, that sounds so incredible. I'm curious in all of the various time frames in the world and all the many different uh, people that you've worked with over time, and I'm sure you've gained so much insight just from working in this very intimate way with so many different people over the years. Um, can you speak a little bit about what you see as some of the most common reasons in our culture that we see this epidemic of food and body image, disordered eating challenge um, amidst especially women, but definitely not, um, definitely not exclusively women. Yeah. And even, even a trend that you may have noticed over the last couple of decades in your work that has been significant. Yeah, well, to me, I mean, I want to make sure that any listener knows that it's it's kind of a complex story because there are psychological, cultural, and biological reasons someone gets an eating disorder. So there, I mentioned earlier, there is a genetic predisposition for anorexia nervosa of kind of perfectionism and being kind of controlling yeah. <laughs> a little bit on the obsessive side and those kind of things, you know, a little anxious, you know, some anxiety. However, and I, and I accept that, however, there is no doubt in my mind, and I think anybody who's really looking cannot deny that this is a huge cultural illness, that, that eating disorders, and we know, I mean, all you have to do is look at something like the Fiji study, where Ann Becker went to Fiji and uh, noticed how different their reactions were about food. This is in the 80s. She went back as a graduate student um, and did a, a, a research project. And in 1995, before 1995, Fiji had no television. They brought television in, I think, 1995. She interviewed, and they had no eating disorders and people were not dieting. It wasn't considered an attractive thing to do to, to diet. And uh, by 1998, somewhere around 15% of the girls who had started watching TV were saying, reported vomiting to lose weight. Now, if you, you, you can't find data that's more like black and white than that. And the more you study, the more they watch TV, the more diets they went on. You know, um, the, the heavier TV watchers, I think, uh, were something like 69% of them said they had started dieting. So we have this cultural thing that there's no doubt that we have a world where what is image over substance is, is just promoted. And I would say in the last 20 years, what I've seen that obviously makes it worse is it's so fast with social media and you know all the ways that we have to 
change images of ourselves and post and how many likes are we getting and the TikTok thing and so it's just it's it's a hard and there's been a lot of work trying to compete with this and trying to deal with it um but to me i i go back to the idea i and this is how i ultimately worked at montanito and how i work with people now and training coaches trying to help people realize learn the difference between their ego self and their soul self mm, and ultimate and ultimately we're not, we don't have a lot of mentors for learning about our soul and once we do i think it, it sounds corny not to you but to some people <laughs> But I think when people really get into it and they realize who is the me beyond the, you know, I'm a teacher and I'm a therapist and I open treatment centers and I'm 5'4 and I'm a wife and all, all the things that we have that, that identify us as, a, as an ego and the ego is necessary. It's just that when it gets, goes out of control and we don't realize there's this other beyond all that, take all those identity markers away and we're still here. If I wasn't a teacher or a therapist or own treatment centers, I'd still have the soul, essence, spirit, self. And it's interesting talking with clients, you know, getting them to really think about that. And, you know, you have them think about their body and have them and their ego and their soul and really look at this. And yoga does that. Yoga is, a, is a, one of the reasons I added yoga. It was very healing for me. Um, but part of the reason is that's what yoga means. It's a, it's, it's, it's to yoke the mind, body, and spirit, you know? So I, I, I think that, yes, there are a lot of treatment protocols that are important, like cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, we have to talk, you have to help people challenge their behaviors. I am direct at, okay, what are you gonna eat this week? Where are you gonna, are you gonna add breakfast? You know, uh, what are you going to add? Okay, yogurt, how much? I'm very specific in helping people change their behaviors. But I think if we don't do that other work, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's more of a symptom control than true healing. Hmm. It's such a beautiful bringing together of the many different aspects of the self. And I love that you're bringing in this soul principle because... I think that without that, it's almost like this work doesn't have an anchor, right? At least in my experience. Yeah, that's we... what I think. I tell people, I don't do this. I don't mention it. Someone told me I shouldn't mention the word soul in my presentations because <laughs> insurance companies don't pay for soul work, you know? I'm like, I'm not mentioning it because I think it's cool. I'm mentioning it because honestly, I see people healing. Talk about anxiety as one of, you know, I said it's one of the, genetic vulnerabilities for people who develop both anorexia and bulimia, by the way. Um, I'm not sure about binge eating, um, but a, one of the things that is we know helps uh, calm anxiety is um, yoga, breath work. I mean, meditation has shown to reduce amygdala firing for very anxious people, you know, and strengthen mm -hmm. that part of our brain the prefrontal cortex which is the part of the brain that has you know where more reason comes and uh, helps us when we're getting over emotional so there's a lot of things that have been known you know for years by 
the ancients, let's say, that we now are only finding, you know, now we can hook people up to the to the monitors and monitor their brain and see, oh, this is what meditation is doing, you know? So there are a lot of things that are helping in ways that I think are getting more clearly understood now, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, some of those um, more ancient practices that used to be preserved for the highly spiritual people yeah. are becoming yeah. so much more mainstream. And while in some ways diluted, in other ways, still a really great entry point for people to at least acknowledge and touch in with these various parts of the self so that there's the ability to at least bring awareness to who's running the show within all exactly. the different, exactly. yeah. It's and also so being powerful. able to separate yourself from your thoughts and feelings. Mm. Because if you yes. have a thought like, oh, I ate that pizza, I'm gonna get fat. I mean, one of the really important things is being able to, I have a chapter in my eight keys book called um, Feel Your Feelings But Challenge Your Thoughts. And we have to help people realize that both of those are not who we are, that we need to learn to be the observing self and to watch our thoughts come and go and our feelings and accept them, but then realize how do you move through that, even thoughts, and helping you realize, you know, I, just because I thought that doesn't mean it's true, <laughs> you know? Exactly, that's one of my favorites. I, and just because I feel that doesn't mean I am that. So teaching people to say, instead of saying, I am sad, to say, I feel sad, that's a subtle thing, but it's a big difference because you can do some things like, even if you're anxious, you can do some things just by breathing and sitting down and um, just being quiet for a few minutes to calm yourself. And if you and if you change your physiology, then that experience of anxiety changes, you know? So these are all the things that were, I used to tell the clients who came to Montanito, I used to tell them that they thought that they were coming for eating disorder treatment, but it's actually life school. Because it, it really is, because your life has to have gotten really out of balance for you to be so taken over by an eating disorder, you know? Absolutely. And essentially, I mean, most of us can experience a time or refer to a time in our own life, whether it's around food or not about food, where we feel like other aspects of ourself have taken over. And it's so powerful to be able to come back to this foundational aspect of really ancient medicine yeah. mind body spirit that can bring us back home to ourselves even if we feel like we are so disconnected from our true nature i really appreciate yeah. that you were able to share this kind of way early on when people needed it so badly as it wasn't as available as it is today yeah. Um, yeah. I appreciate you saying that. I was, it was a little risky. You know, people thought I was the woo woo California therapist, I think, but Montanito had really good outcome studies and that the proof in people getting better, the insurance companies started paying for it and then it grew. And so in, in many ways, I feel so grateful that what I, my hunches, you know, and the things that helped me heal turned out to have a lot of merit. I want to take a short pause from this conversation 
to tell you a little bit about my upcoming Satiate Your Soul Bali Women's Wellness and Yoga Retreat. For the last two years, Bali has been closed due to the pandemic and has just recently reopened to international travel. On June 11th to 18th, I'll be taking a small and intimate group of women to Bali to enjoy this incredible retreat and adventure, which is a beautiful merge into the culture and beauty of Bali through yoga, ritual, cycling, exploration, and magic. This is limited space for seven to nine women, where we will have the opportunity to slow down, unwind, and experience our health and nourishment in a whole new way. Your retreat will be one supported by the daily practices that create health, nourishment, balance, and satiation in every area of your life. I am committed to providing a week where we tend to ourselves from the inside out, where we tap into our own organic rhythms, connect with like-minded adventurers and retreaters on a similar quest, and step into an experiential and cultural immersion in the sacred land of Bali. We'll be practicing goddess yin and flow yoga daily, inspired by the Hindu goddess myths that are so prevalent in the Balinese culture. We'll engage in radiant health practices, including organic, homemade healing foods, cooking classes in the Balinese tradition, and inspirational workshops. We'll offer optional soulful cycling experiences, which are gentle and explorative ways to see some of Bali's most culturally significant sites, rice fields, waterfalls, temples, and villages. These rides are also supported by our support team and support van if you'd prefer to ride home in a cushier style. There'll be opportunity for restorative rest, relaxation, renewal, reflection, and self-discovery, as well as a deep immersion into the culture through ritual, dance, food, and goddess study. Join me this June 2022 in experiencing this very special and intimate Balinese retreat, illuminating the devotional and cultural aspects of Bali through the lens of the feminine. For more information and to register, you can go over to bouldernutrition.com slash Bali and you'll find all the information and details there. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. I would be honored to host you on this magical retreat that is long overdue. Now, back to today's conversation with Carolyn Costin. You know, so now I'm trying to talk about it. I don't run Montanito and own it anymore, but now I'm trying to put that into my work training coaches, you know, people who are recovered and training them how to give back in the same kind of way, you know. Absolutely. It's so powerful to have more people to support the people who need help because they're, in my experience, so many so many people are feeling disconnected out of balance whether it's to the extremes or subtly but there's just a lot of food and body disconnect in our culture today 
it's sad. Yeah, and we're all over the map with terms of, you know, it's, it's almost like knowing what to do with your body and nutrition, even as an informed person, is a little bit like knowing what political party you stand for, because it depends on, are you watching Fox News or MSNBC? And the same thing, you can read this nutrition book that says mm -hmm. you should be on the keto, no carbs and whatever. And then you can be on this book that's the vegan plant-based. Absolutely. It's, it's all over the map. And I work so hard to help people. How do you get a balance that uh, in, in food? Nothing has to be extreme, you know? How do you learn to be... Um, wise uh, about your choices, but also have fun and be playful and don't get caught up into anything that becomes so, I have to only ha do this, you know? I've seen that enough to know that I wanna help people while they're living their life, find the balance for them. And I don't have a certain way that I think people have to do it. I think that's also a problem that happens sometimes now with treatment is we're very, Oh, you can't be a vegetarian if you have an eating disorder because that's part of the eating disorder. And I'm like, it doesn't, it does, that's a battle that's not worth fighting. There's a lot of reasons to be vegetarian for the planet, for example, you know. So it's not a battle worth fighting. And I think sometimes we get into power struggles that don't have to be, you know. Absolutely. And really, anytime I see any regimen, especially around food, but any regiment that's like, this is the way it's right. There is a red flag, right? It's like, what about figuring out our way, yeah. our own way within, you know, some of the universal principles around health and vitality and energy and how to thrive with food. But at the same time, as soon as I notice these very restrictive rules or these very restrictive one way is the way regimens, it just seems to me like it's a kind of a recipe for disaster for the most part, because usually we break our own really restrictive rules over time. And there's just so many different kinds of people and metabolisms and lineages and eating styles from all over the world that work within different cultures when we go back to the very basics. Right. And so how can we really find this one way that is going to superiorly take over the world <laughs> it just doesn't make much sense. and there's so much information you know finding what how you want to educate yourself and there's just so much information out there i mean yeah so anyway it's and it's usually all mixed up in a lot of other things about um and, and it's mixed up in weight loss too i mean we can't Absolutely. we can't I mean, it's really interesting. I don't know if you ever heard this, but if you look at countries and you see the, the rise in obesity, you will see the rise in anorexia nervosa follow it. And, mm. and it, it makes sense because what starts happening when a country like uh, Australia, for example, you know, following the US, here goes their obesity, then here goes their anorexia, and other eating disorders too, but that's such a disparate one, right? Obesity mm -hmm. and anorexia. And, and because as the war on obesity happens and people start saying all these things about, um, you know, trying to get a control on obesity and, you know, watch your fat intake or whatever, 
in that net of making people a little phobic and panicked, you catch those who, like myself, who then, oh, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm just going to lose weight. My doctor told my mom I should go on a diet. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at pictures of me, I, I was not, I mean, it, 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 that, it was, that was an inappropriate message, you know? Anyway, uh, uh, you, so, so when you put that net out to help all these people, we got to help obesity, you're going to catch some people that have those other factors, you know, the, the, the little jigsaw pieces of a puzzle that, mm. you know, create the perfect storm. But Absolutely. I do think we have to reckon ourselves with how we deal with obesity because I think we do have problems uh, in, in terms of our our food and um, a, a lot of, if you look at the whole thing about the fast food industry and all that, and it doesn't mean I'm against fast food. I mean, we, I would have the clients at Montanito, they would go out for burgers and pizza. So they would, again, it's about balance, you know? Right. And I also don't, and I also am a health at every size proponent. I don't, I don't look at anybody and say, oh, you need to lose weight. Let me help you lose weight. What I say is I can help you with your relationship to food. If, if you are a, a person who is a binge eater and you come to me and you say, oh, I want to lose weight and I, I'm, I've been binging and all that, I will say, well, we're going to focus on your relationship with food and that's what we're going to heal. If weight loss is a byproduct of that, that's fine, but I'm not going to set a goal with you to lose weight because why should I, who am I? I don't know you should lose weight and I'm not certainly not going to base it just because on size on a number on a scale or how you look same thing if the doc doctors push weight loss and they'll say things like um, you know tell this person oh you need to lose weight and as opposed to what you need to do is lower your cholesterol what you need to do is lower your triglycerides or your blood pressure and then they just say lose weight. And it's so much better if they say do that because people can look at their food and deal with making changes and all that to get healthy and not be so over-focused on weight. And often weight is the byproduct of that, but it shouldn't be the focus. Absolutely. I so agree. I so agree. And it's so heartbreaking when I hear stories like this from my clients, similar to yours, where they're getting this messaging from somebody that they look up to yeah. such as their primary care doctor. And that actually really segues into my next question, okay. a term that you use, body image bullying. And when I read that, you know, my whole heart just like raced in my chest because it is such a problematic situation, especially for young women. Can you speak to that a little bit and how this really can create a negative paradigm for our culture and what we're hearing from sometimes medical professionals. Yeah, you know, it's actually one of the things when I was talking earlier about social media, that it happens, it happens all the time. And it happens in all kinds of different ways. I mean, it can happen in terms of girlfriends getting together and making comments about some other girl or sending social media posts about that person. But but it, it also happens in ways like a physician who, you know, I had there is a funny story of a of a woman I saw speaking once who is a woman she's in a larger body and she was um uh, a runner 
And she went to the doctor because she started having foot pain. And the doctor said to her, well, it's because you're so heavy, you know, you need to lose weight. And she said, that's funny because my other foot's not bothering me. And <laughs> she was telling the story about how he just assumed before taking an x-ray to see if she had, you know, just assumed your foot's going to hurt. That's a kind of bullying too, you know. That's a kind of way that we... Um, discriminate about weight without really getting to what the real issue is you know but but we we also have it you know jeers we have people you know someone who's in a larger body who might be walking down the street there's still to this day people who will make uh yell out the window and and say some kind of disparaging words and it's not bullying, but it is, uh, maybe some people would call this, it, it, it's, it's not bullying because it's not overt, but think about having restaurants where you don't have big enough seats for people, you know, uh, the whole thing about, and this has been talked about, you know, this is not new, and a, a lot of people pro- address these issues better than I do, but I just think um, we have to be, conscious of it when we're work well when I'm working with people I'm conscious of the fact that they are getting that out there and they have there is a stigma and I work with them on how they are dealing with it and handling it because it does exist and how they might look at me and think well what do you know you know you you have what's what people now would say is thin privilege right that that you and I don't experience the same kind of discrimination that other people do, especially people in larger bodies. And when we're just when we're talking about, I mean, there's a lot of reasons people get discriminated, but right now we're talking oh, yeah. about that. Absolutely. And, and so I, I, you know, being able to say, what does it feel like to work with someone like me? And all I can share with them is the fact that we both, I had a very unnatural relationship with food in my body. You have that now. That is the thing I can relate to. I can't relate to the kind of discrimination that you get because no, I didn't have that. But let's work through how are you going to deal with it? Trying to help people take their adversity to advocacy, you know, being advocates for right. Like I would have people write letters to a certain um, advertiser if they were advertising something like skinny milk or you know you know stuff like yeah. that yeah 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 helping people become activist uh helps them sometimes feel like okay i have a place and i'm gonna help other young girls because we do all come in different shapes and sizes you know yeah and absolutely like giving another voice to that experience is so powerful for future people to hear when they need it and it almost brings a level of purpose into their healing journey, I'm sure, to have that. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. I think it does. Um, Yeah, and I was, you know, looking through some of your many um, books and so many, so many great options for people to explore with wherever they follow around their relationship to food and body. But I would love to hear in all of your years of work and all of this methodology that you've created and developed over the years, could you speak to a couple of 
kind of your favorite aspects and elements that you share with your um, clients and now your the people that you're training in your programs like you know where does this methodology like hit you in, in your heart center and where you can find your deepest passions well the deepest passion part is definitely going to be the ego soul stuff that I talked about you know but um but it's it's interesting because it is a blend of very practical things, you know. So getting someone to see how they can take their own traits and uh, take them from what I would call the darkness to the light. So when I meet somebody let's say who has the same traits that I do, that's more uh, perfectionistic and a little more compulsive than anxious. And, and, and I'm less those things as I'm older, you know, you, you work on yourself and you mitigate those traits, but they still exist, you know, within me and I recognize them and, 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 and in other people. So helping them, okay, so you have those traits, but rather than call it perfectionism, let's just realize that you're very, um, detail-oriented person, you know, and uh, and rather than anxiety, you have a lot of energy. And so I work with people, and let's say somebody with bulimia who tends to be more impulsive. I tend to be more over-controlled, and someone with bulimia will tend to be a little more impulsive, let's say. But that's a really great trait when you look at how spontaneous they can be. So like my, I have a, a really good girlfriend who's more the impulsivity and she always gets me to do things that I'm more, I don't know, you know, there's, there's signs posted up. We're not supposed to go in here. And she, she gets off her bike and runs and jumps in the lake and it gets me to do those things. Right? So anyway, I, one of the things that I love doing is helping people. Let's look at all your, your traits, you know? Like, are you compulsive? Are you obsessive? Are you shy? Are you, and, and what is good about that trait? So I want to give you your traits back to yourself in a way that you mm. can use them for your highest good. And so it's so interesting, you know, like teaching someone who's been told, oh, you're so perfectionistic for years, teaching her how you are a detailed oriented person. Where is that going to serve you? Right? Mm. And, um, and it does, that's the type of person that gets their homework done. I always tell people in high school, I got straight A's and anorexia, but it's the same trait. So who helps yeah. us channel our, what we come into this world with, whether it's karma or our genetic predisposition, you know, past life or whatever, what we come into this world, if, if people can help us channel that for our highest good. So that's part of what I do that I absolutely love. And then people don't feel like they are um, stuck with these genes that they can't do anything about. That's not true. You get to channel them. You get to shape them. In the, in, and so they flow in the way that you want them to flow. And I think the, the, the second probably most important thing I teach is that everybody who walks in my door was born with a healthy core self in there. And over time, 
developed this split off ego state that got stronger and stronger and stronger that I call the eating disorder self. And I do not, I always say the battle is not between me and you, you know, or your parents and you, or your, you know, psychiatrist and you, or the treatment program and you, it's between you and you. There's a part of you that knows the truth. Like, and, and you can always get it out in people like, well, a woman who has anorexia nervosa, but she's feeding her kids three meals a day. You know, there's a healthy, you know what to feed your kids. So I always look for that healthy self in the person and say, here's how you're gonna heal. We're gonna strengthen that part. We're gonna grow it back up. We're gonna give it more juice. And you are going to start challenging your eating disorder self, not me, you. And getting people journaling, getting in dialogue with those parts of themselves. And the whole idea is not getting rid of this part of yourself. There's a reason why it came there. We're going to get rid of the behaviors it uses and integrate it back. So now you're a whole person mm. and you're not the split off self, you know, that's probably, I honestly, I would say if anything, that's probably the number one reason for why I have been such a successful, and I have been. I look at the data that's out there about, I don't know if I would have stayed in the business if I had had that kind of data, you know, about how hard it is for people to recover. And I just don't have that feeling, and I know it sounds a little pompous, but if you look at the outcome studies for Montanito and my first 15 years in practice, I sent out to all my clients and asked them, you know, how they were doing. And I honestly think the eating disorder self, healthy self thing, where you don't get into a power struggle, trying to take it away, you find the person's healthy self and go, that's it. There you are. You have to get back in control and grow it back up. And that there's something that feels, that resonates with the clients. They don't, they don't have to be so afraid of it because I'm working with the part of them that's already there, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that's the best way I can explain it. Yeah, it's incredible. Like, first of all, listening to this gives me a whole body sense of relief. Just that's my personal experience right here listening to you because what you're saying is so inclusive of playing to our strengths. And sometimes our strengths can also get out of balance like what you're saying about someone who might be a perfectionist and that can lead them down one path if that gets out of balance but yet at the same time it is a strength that can also move them forward in their lives because they have such attention to detail and i think when we're taught and we're told and we're coached on squishing parts of ourselves that aren't serving us it's like, first of all, that's practically impossible. But second of all, I mean, it's hard for us to let go of some of the aspects that really are our true nature. We just maybe haven't learned how to use them for yeah. our own benefit. So yeah. hearing you put it into these terms just gives me such a sense of relief for all of us because we oh, all have, so nice. <laughs> you know, we all have places that our, our personalities can get exacerbated. I know for me, like sometimes I can be overly attached to over planning every detail and, you know, holding on to the plan and not wanting to be able to, not wanting to have to change the plan. And while that can make me anxious and feel out of control, 
sometimes being able to have strong planning tendency, for example, can be very advantageous. You know, I did a lot of, I, I've done a lot of podcasts during um, COVID. And one of the things that I was saying is that people who have the genetic vulnerability for anorexia were the ones that made sure that everyone has their mask. You know, I got the, I got the Perel right off the bat and I was the one scrubbing the boxes and I was laughing at myself, you know, and said to my husband, look, see, this is when my genetic traits come in handy, you know, mm -hmm. because, because they can be used for either, either way. And, and it, and you're right. It is this whole genetics thing. When, when, when people started doing the genetic research and saying eating disorders are a genetic thing, which I already told you, I don't believe. I believe there's a vulnerability. I believe there is a, a risk factor with certain genes, but I don't think it's a genetic illness. Mm -hmm. I think it has mm -hmm. to have all those things. But when the research started coming out, people just got way too, they were just, they were using that term loosely. And I had clients showing up to treatment saying, why bother if it's genetic and I can't do anything about it? And I was like, no, that's that's the whole. I mean, they're saying it's going to get rid of stigma, but it actually gave a little more stigma until you can say, no, 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 you have a genetic vulnerability. But let's look at all those. The you, it's looking at your traits as assets versus liabilities. You know, absolutely. And you're and right. We all have it. Right. And within our weaknesses, maybe genetic weaknesses, let's call it. Um, let's say you come from a family where you have a lot of type two diabetes. We know from a nutritional perspective that you can eat in a way to avoid that gene to turn on. You yep. can eat in a way to take care of yourself, even with that in your health history. And I love that you're able to really make that discernment because it creates space for empowerment. You know, it's not like, oh, woe is me. Everyone in my family has diabetes. So I'm obviously going to get that. Or I have this genetic tendency that might lead me down a road to an eating disorder. We have another power within us. I think you and I could both agree. It comes from the deepest parts of our soul to make conscious choice and to exactly decide on the path we want to take. Yeah. And we have to let people come to that because force is never going to really heal anybody it, it is a temporary compliance you know and i saw that with people relapsing over and over and that's why i go back to this thing about the internal shift because what happens a lot is that you have so this person develops eating disorder rules and they will if you talk to them you say what rules do you have and if they don't know quite what you mean at first you say oh you know like you can't eat past eight o'clock at night or you cannot have over 15 carbs at a meal or you have whatever, they have these rules or you have to get rid of ice cream if you ever eat it or whatever. And they have, they are, are following these rules and you, they, if they break the rule, then they get all this anxiety, you know, and then, but going through the rules and saying, okay, what is the evidence for that rule? When did it, are you going to follow that for the rest of your life? Does everybody else on the planet have to follow that rule? What happens to you if you don't follow that rule? Is there any evidence for that? And there's a whole thing in the, in the eight keys book called conscious eating. And one of the things in conscious eating is, which 
is asking people about, you know, what rules are you following? Because you made the rules so mm -hmm. that you can make different rules. You don't have to leave Absolutely. people, you know, or, or what I like to say, guidelines. So you don't have a rule that's like completely unbreakable, but you have guidelines, you know, you don't have to go from, people get freaked out when they think, well, I just can't, I just can't be left all over the place. Do, you know, I won't know what to do. Then I, I might start with, well, then you can change these strict rules you have. Let's start broadening it, you know? And so that goes back to meeting people where they are, which might've been why I started talking about the rules. I don't know. <laughs> well, so I see it all the time. There's so many. It's so common. Yeah. It's so common to see people not really even aware that they wrote their own rules. Yes. And that once you, they see that highlighted for them and there's this opportunity that they maybe didn't even realize to rewrite the rules into something that actually is more of a guideline and more spacious and more empowering and more fun and pleasurable in a lot of ways, because I believe pleasure heals as well. It's, um, it's just another layer for so many people to realize that like, we're the governor of our own self. And therefore we can rewrite our guidebook <laughs> anytime if it exactly. needs to be updated. <laughs> yeah. That's why I believe people can be recovered. And I've had for years had to stand on the, you know, the, my you know soapbox saying you can be recovered from this there's no possible yeah. possible way that we're gonna get this illness with food that we have to deal with for the rest of our lives but a lot of people are told that that you'll always be recovering i think less so now um but you know i've certainly been saying it for 40 years now and a lot of other people are saying it too that it's not like uh, drug addiction, you know, or alcohol where, you know, in, in AA, you say, hi, I'm Carolyn, I'm anorexic, uh, I'm a recovering anorexic, you know, um, when, they, when they take, I mean, alcoholic, but they take that and apply it to anorexia. And I mm -hmm. don't do that because I don't, I don't want people to sit around and say, first of all, I don't want them to say I am anorexic. And then I don't want to say I am a recovering anorexic. If anything, I want someone to say I suffer from anorexia and now I recovered from anorexia, which is different than with alcoholics who use the term recovering because they think if they have a drink or something, they'll go off the wagon and because of their genetic biological makeup, you know, they can't drink. And maybe that's true. I'm, I'm not an expert in alcoholism, so I, I'm okay. But I, I'm willing to accept that. But I don't think that's with food, which we all have to have. I just have never thought that. And I think there's enough people in the world who are recovered um, now who are speaking out. Like I'm training all these recovered people to give back right now. So there's... Which is amazing. There's more and more and more people and more professionals who are recovered, who are in the field and all that. I remembered what I was going to say about the rules. Okay. What I was going to say that I see all the time now, and I've been talking about a lot lately is, so the person has all these eating disorder rules and then they go into treatment and they get all these treatment rules mm -hmm. that are just basically given to them as you have to do this and you have to eat this and you have to do, right? If that un un inner work doesn't take place, 
if that getting the individual to the empowerment piece that you were talking about, about rewriting their own guidelines or rules, when they get out, they go back to eating disorder rules. And I keep trying to say, look, we have to, this is why we have to treat people individually. We can't just say, here's the program, treatment rules in the program. It's easier to do, I know, and it's easier to have protocols and policies where you just bring them in and everybody's treated you know, the same. But I think we're creating this thing where the person has all these eating disorder rules they follow, then they go into treatment programs and they follow all these treatment program rules. What do they do when they leave? What happens? And too often, they don't have the structure and the monitoring and the supervision and the consequences that you would have, like let's say in a treatment program. So now they're back out and where, so I asked them, where's your North Star, you know? Where's your guiding principle? Where's your values that you wanna follow? Because you're slipping back to those eating disorder rules now because you didn't, you haven't internalized your own guidance. Right. System. You know? Yeah, it's just like a switch from one to the other, both on a, in a sense, externalized. It's like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be, this is not going to be enforced, then I have to enforce this on myself. I yeah. can totally see I how think, that would be. I've been talking about this now, the last few lectures I've given, I've been talking about this because I see it so often and so dramatically in the times of in the kinds of treatments we try to impose on people i think we have to sit back and i think we have to be in for it's a longer haul getting somebody to change and make an internal shift they have to be able to come along and not be so intensely um uh distressed agitated anxious about the treatment where they just can't wait to get out you know it has to be something that they feel like is collaborative with them is gives them time like even if it's someone with anorexia on weight gain i would let someone gain weight and then hang out there for a little while so their psyche could catch up to their new body and then we go the next step but sometimes it's like get the you know wait on that's the focus you know yeah. we get lost sometimes in treating the symptoms absolutely absolutely well we're such a culture of treating symptoms that that would make sense if we were to look kind of at right how we do this across the board with so many things but in this case and, yeah. and yeah. i believe all cases you know getting to the root of it which is usually so much more below food and it's so much more of a deeper wound that may play out in other areas of our lives as well it's um, you know i have a in the eight keys there's a chapter chapter three key three is it's not about the food and then key five is well it is about the food and it's because you have to deal with both you know right. you can't just deal with underlying issues and never help somebody deal with food and their weight and their body mm -hmm. right then they don't mm -hmm. heal but you can't do it the other way around either. So it's, Absolutely. it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a combination of weaving in and out in, uh, of both. Yes. One of the things that you and I discovered when we met was that we both have a passion for yoga and yoga philosophy and some of the deeper, you know, aspects of that tradition. And I would love to hear how you find this particular practice of yoga meditation um, this lineage, how that impacts what you've seen within your work as far as healing and supportive ways that we can 
use this practice for um, deeper awareness, ha what have you, on this journey around food and body? Um, I think one of the main things about yoga is that we learn how to sit with ourselves and be in our body, be actually in our body in the moment, which is not, I mean, when you're, some people get that flow when they're in a, in a sport, you know, and there's moments in sport when people would say they're in flow, so to speak, you know, where they're just going by natural and all that. But there's something about yoga, the whole practice of it is being able to be still and be able to be in your body and be able to, I mean, the poses were originally, my understanding, were originally made to help people sit in meditation, you know, I mean, um, so that's one thing, being able to sit and be quiet and be, just be, just be. And, and the reason that I think the, the, that moving flows help with that, because one, I think they help you, like where does my body, where can my body bend here? Can I balance in tree pose right now? And if I'm agitated or anxious, my balancing is gonna be off. And how does my body inform me about what else is going on with me? Can I sit in Shavasana at the end of a class? I mean, that used to be so hard for me. I used to think, oh, this part, you know, I just did my class, I'm ready, gotta go, you know? And I was constantly aware of how silly that was, that I could do everything else, but why wasn't I valuing that part? The part where I'm still, the part where I'm doing nothing, the part where I'm just being. And so every one of these things, I think, are lessons that you get on the mat, but then you realize how you can transfer them off the mat. So at Montanito, I would have the yoga teacher come into staff meeting and report on the various things that the clients were doing because it helped us know, like for example, if there was a client who had trauma in her life and she just couldn't close her eyes and do Shavasana, but, but when she was able to, the yoga teacher could report it and then her therapist would hear that and her therapist would be able to integrate that work, you know, mm -hmm. on the mat, yeah. off the mat work. But I, and I also think there is, and I've had people write things about how yoga was the first time that they actually got in touch with that there's this life force moving through their body. Isn't that interesting? They just had no other way to be aware of it. And they weren't going to do it through religion. You know, maybe they'd been turned off to that to some reason, but because there's breathing and because you can breathe into a stretch, for example, you know, and you can see, oh, I'm putting breath into that and that helps. Oh my God, how does that work? You know, so I think we learn about ourselves and our embodiment in yoga. And I think, mm. I think it helps us to become more embodied as we go about our other things. Now, there's a lot of other stuff about the philosophies that were developed over time, you know, Patanjali and the Yamas and Niyamas that we talked about when we first met not that long ago <laughs> you know about nonviolence, and i mean there's other things that can be useful when you start looking at the philosophy because there's a whole philosophy it's not just about the asanas it's not just about the postures but even if you just use the postures i would see people go from needing to i gotta be on a treadmill to oh i'm using my body 
and I can see today is a different day. Today I won't focus on balancing poses or today I want to focus on flexibility and how does that show up in my life, you know? Yeah. So there are all such kinds a powerful of practice. I was theming a class this week that I taught around how our practice, our yoga practice can meet us right where we are. Exactly. And you know, many of us have heard that phrase before. I surely didn't coin the phrase, but I come back to it over and over again because there's days when our practice is rigorous because we're energized. There's days when our practice is restorative because we're tired. There's days when our practice can quell our anxiety or help us soften into ourselves a little bit. And, you know, we can amplify so many various aspects of the practice that we might need on different days to match where we are, including physical injury, including yeah. you know, so many aspects yeah. of the self. And so in a way it's so pal palluable, is that the word palluable? Malleable, malleable. it's so malleable. <laughs> it's so malleable because it's really like we can sculpt it to match exactly what we need if we are able to tune into what we need, which is obviously such another integral layer of and the body tells us, you know, I think it's, it helps uh, with acceptance and self acceptance and body acceptance, because if I can't do something like if I can't do, like you can't force yourself to do the splits if you can't do them. But what you can do is have your own legs move a little farther apart this week. And then maybe next week they're a little further apart and, and you have this really learned embodied experience of changing and progressing as long as you accept where you are in the moment mm -hmm. because if you push past where you are in the moment then you're going to hurt yourself and then you're going to then it's going to take longer to actually do the pose that you're looking to do but if you accept exactly where you are that acceptance and being able to hold your edge right where it is gets you to the next step, which is amazing, really, as a metaphor, you know? Oh, so good. Yes. It's such a great metaphor. Thank you so much for that insight. It really, it really can apply to so many things. It really yeah. can apply to so many things. Yeah. How did they know that way back when? <laughs> I surely wish that I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> but I'm so glad we have that lineage and that practice to draw from. It's really impacted me and my own journey so much and i know when i really discovered how embodiment and yoga and soulfulness let's call it could apply to healing our relationship to food and body my whole practice went it took a whole turn you know it was like the light bulb went on yeah. and i saw the women that were working from that direction inward heal and become so much more integrated in themselves it was just such a gift to be able to witness um, I, and i love that you use that word integrated because as you know i mean i have all these stages for what happens you know with the eating disorder self and the healthy self and then the ultimate stage you get closer and closer together till you're integrated it's a, such a good oh, word. such a good thank word. you and i'm so glad because that was my next question for you was really like the defining of healthiness around food and body, maybe we got the answer. Maybe that was the tip of the iceberg. That integration sounds like well, a really 
big piece, but do you have any more to say? Well, it's, it's, it's definitely not having a split off self, you know, that would treat other people different than you would treat yourself. But yeah, I have a whole way of understanding when you're really healed. And I wrote it because, because I was spouting off so much about being recovered and writing about being recovered. I was asked to come up, well, what do you mean, you know, definition? And, and it's really, you know, when, it, when the, a person can accept their body size and shape and they no longer have a self-destructive relationship with food or exercise, you know, so that involves acceptance and not, 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 not being self-destructive in any way around food and exercise. And basically food and weight take a proper perspective. It doesn't mean you don't care at all about what you eat or how you look, but they take a proper perspective in your life so that what you weigh isn't more important than who you are. In fact, it's of little of importance. In fact, numbers, you know, like how far, how long, how fast, how much, you know, numbers uh, become very, uh, unimportant in your world, right? Um, there's a couple other things. When uh, when you're recovered from an eating disorder, you'll no longer um, betray. You'll no longer compromise your health or betray your soul to look a certain mm. way, wear a certain size, or reach a certain number on the scale. And you'll no longer use eating disorder behaviors to deal with, cope with, or distract from problems. And that's it. That's basically my definition. It's about four par four small paragraphs, but it includes that acceptance of body size and shape, putting those things, they can be in your life, but they're in their proper perspective. My favorite, not compromising your health or betraying your soul. It still, you know, I, I blow dry my hair. I put on makeup for this, you know, and I was thinking about it as I was doing that and thinking how interesting it is. There's this place that we all want to, we live in this world. We negotiate this planets. Our egos are important to us and they matter and that's okay. But it's when we compromise that, when we compromise our health or betray our souls, uh, when our ego gets so over controlled and we, we forget about the other parts and, um, you know, the, the, I think Eckhart Tolle said, um, the ego is a, 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 a wonderful servant, but a terrible master, you know, <laughs> can't Love be it. the one that's always controlling. So yeah, it's okay to want to, to look a certain way and put lipstick on I put my earrings on, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not gonna, I am no longer. And I did, I did compromise my health and betray my soul when I had mm -hmm. an eating disorder and I would never do that again. It's not, it's not even in the realm of possibility, you know? And I think when people, unless they know they have a soul and identify and connect with it, this part of the definition wouldn't even mean anything. So I have to bring yeah. it into my work, you know? Yeah. It's so um, part of the holistic approach and it's so part of ourselves that it's hard to over overlook that and kind of move beyond that. It's, it's so integral. So I really appreciate you pioneering the way for that in our field of, you know, food and body. It's so impactful and I just feel so grateful for your wisdom today. It's, oh, it's thank really, you so much really inspiring and I'm so honored to have this conversation with you and to be able to share this with people 
who are listening. And I just want to really deeply thank you for taking the time to be here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I said in the beginning, I love to talk about this stuff and you were so easy because you're already vibrating on that frequency. <laughs> you know? Thank you. It is such an honor to spend time with you here on Satiate. And may this conversation be of benefit. From my heart to yours, I wish you health and happiness for the coming season. And may we meet again here very soon. Take good care.